Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. And our guest today is Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the United States and one of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's closest foreign policy advisors. Ambassador Dermer previously served as Israel's economic envoy to the United States and then as senior advisor to the prime minister before his appointment in 2013 as Israel's top diplomat in Washington. Ambassador Dermer will be talking with us about the UAE-Israel agreement to normalize relations, next steps in diplomacy with the Palestinians, the threat from Iran, and U.S.-Israel relations. All that after this short break. If you combine Israeli technology and innovation with the entrepreneurialism, the investment strength, and this commercial center in the UAE, I just think the sky's the limit. And I think people will see, um, I think, the enormous benefits of this piece. Both Israelis will see it, I think Emiratis will see it, but I think hopefully it will lead to the expansion of peace to other countries, uh, and also the deepening of the current peace that we have with both Egypt and Jordan. And ultimately, uh, I think it will increase the chances that one day we'll also be able to achieve peace with our Palestinian neighbors. That's Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the United States, who will be joining us shortly. But first, my take on the UAE-Israel Normalization Agreement brokered by the Trump administration this month. For President Trump, it's a blockbuster diplomatic score. The UAE becomes only the third Arab country ever after Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994 to make peace with Israel. Trump considers supporters of Israel as key to his political base. His administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, and recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. And now he can add an Israeli-Arab peace agreement to that list. For Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, this is a big-time legacy issue, but not the legacy issue he and some of his coalition supporters might have hoped for, as Ben Kaspit explains in a recent El Monitor article. On the one hand, Netanyahu joins his predecessors, Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Rabin, in the small pantheon of Israeli peacemakers with Arab states. But the legacy Netanyahu and many of his more right-leaning and conservative supporters probably wanted more was annexation, that is, extending Israeli sovereignty over Jewish settlements in the West Bank. For the UAE deal, Netanyahu had to suspend his plans for annexation. Now, suspend, of course, is not give up. And Bibi has since said that he has not given up his plans for annexation, but annexation is definitely off the table in the context of the agreement with the UAE. From the start, annexation always rested on a green light from President Trump. That's not happening. Last week, White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner said, Israel has agreed with us that they will not move forward with annexation without our consent. And Kushner added that we do not plan to give our consent for some time. 
Now for Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, the architect of the deal for the UAE, the move was bold and not without some risk. He conditioned the deal solely on the suspension of annexation and he delivered on it. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas nonetheless referred to the deal as, quote, nonsense. And Abbas claimed annexation was already dead and that the deal is otherwise a sellout. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia cautiously welcomed the deal, but stuck to its position in the Arab Peace Initiative, which was initiated by the kingdom in 2002, that normalization depends on a two-state solution. And the UAE has also made clear that it is not venturing too far from the Arab Peace Initiative, and in fact, that its deal with Israel could actually help bring about Israeli-Palestinian negotiations that would eventually lead to peace. UAE Ambassador to the United States, Yusuf el Ataiba wrote last week in an editorial for the Israeli Ynet News Service that the deal, quote, maintains the viability of a two-state solution as a, endorsed by the Arab League and the international community. Eyes will be on whether other Arab states may soon follow suit. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in the region this week. He's visiting Sudan and Bahrain after his meetings earlier in the week in Israel. Both Sudan and Bahrain are candidates to follow the UAE lead, as is Oman. White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner is also planning to visit the region soon. Now, there's a lot more to say, but it's probably best said by our guest today, Ambassador Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the United States, who joins us now. Ambassador Dermer, welcome to On the Middle East. Great to be with you, Andrew. Let's start with the Abrahamic Accords, that is the agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates to normalize relations. Both Israel and the UAE have cited numerous opportunities to work together in economics, technology, trade, health, including dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The process that led to this agreement reportedly included meetings in Washington, including you, uh, UAE Ambassador Ella Taiba, White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner and others. Just tell us briefly a little about how the process got going and your role in it. Well, look, there were a lot of meetings uh, behind the scenes, and it was kept a very close hold on our side. I think on the U.S. side, there were very few officials who were even aware of it, and I think it was the case uh, as well on the Emirati side. And I think that's important because sometimes these breakthroughs can get undermined by, by essentially leaks that just give part of the story and then all the opponents uh, rally against it, and then you sort of undermine something before it has a chance to uh, to take off. And I, I'm glad we were able to achieve it. And if I played some small role in making that happen, then uh, then uh, that I'm very pleased about that because I think it's very good uh, for Israel. I think it's very good for the UAE, and I think it's very good for the region. It's our third agreement that we have had this normalization agreement with an Arab state. Uh, the first was obviously with Egypt in 1979, and that historic uh, breakthrough uh, following Sadat's uh, visit to Jerusalem. 
that ultimately led to the peace agreement uh, being signed at the White House in 1979. And then you had in 1994, the peace between Israel and Jordan that was signed really in the wake of Oslo. Uh, and now you have the third agreement with the UAE, and I, I think what excites me about this, Andrew, is I think there's a possibility here for it to lead to a warm peace between Israel and the UAE. Now, cold peace is certainly better than a hot war, but warm peace would be the best uh, situation to have. And I think because of the nature of uh, of and the Emirati economy and society, and because of the synergies with Israel. I think the opportunities are quite dramatic. The UAE, as you know, and many of your listeners know, is a financial and commercial center um, in the Middle East and beyond. They have used huge investment capabilities and ultra great entrepreneurs there. And Israel, as you also know, is one of the great sources and centers, I should say, of innovation in the world, probably second only to Silicon Valley. So if you can compare or combine uh, Israeli technology and innovation with the entrepreneurialism, the investment strength, and this commercial center in the UAE, I just think the sky's the limit. And I think people will see, um, I think, the enormous benefits of this piece. Both Israelis will see it, I think Emiratis will see it, but I think hopefully it will lead to the expansion of peace to other countries uh, and also the deepening of the current peace that we have with both Egypt and Jordan. And ultimately, uh, I think it will increase the chances that one day we'll also be able to achieve peace with our Palestinian neighbors. Ambassador, the potential that you lay out for the relationship in, in so many areas uh, was conditioned in the agreement on Israel suspending its plans for annexation, that is extending sovereignty over Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Is annexation now off the table for good with this agreement? No, I wouldn't say that. The word was chosen very carefully, that word suspend. We spent quite a lot of time on it. Uh, and it was chosen because uh, it is, uh, I suppose Henry Kissinger would say, constructive ambiguity. Uh, and there's no question that the Emiratis um, wanted to see um, the, uh, this to be permanent. Uh, the Israel um, was determined to not make it a permanent commitment. Uh, but when the Emiratis went to the United States, which they did, and asked that uh, and said essentially to the U.S. administration, look, we're willing to fully normalize ties with Israel, uh, and we asked for the suspension of this move that Israel was planning, and we were moving ahead uh, to extend sovereignty to territories uh, in Judea and Samaria that the Trump plan has outlined as being part of Israel in the future, the Trump peace plan that was put out in January. So the Emiratis came to them sometime at the end of June, beginning of July, and said, look, we're willing to normalize, but we would like to see this plan uh, suspended to extend sovereignty. Then the U.S. administration came to us and they said, look, we have something very real. We have a historic breakthrough. And therefore, we want you to suspend uh, extending sovereignty to those areas. The U.S. didn't ask us to permanently take it off the table, but they did ask us to suspend it. And they said, give us the time and space that we need in order to take advantage of this historic breakthrough and lead to other breakthroughs because there are several states that have come to the United States that are close to being in the position that the, the Emirates were. And so that came to the prime minister and the prime minister thought this was something that would be very good for Israel, this historic breakthrough with them and uh, agreed to give the United States the time and space it needs uh, in order to, uh, to expand uh, peace between Israel and our Arab neighbors. And I think he made the right decision for Israel and the right decision uh, for the region. But it's not permanently off the table, but it has been suspended. 
And is that uh, suspension been complicating at all for Prime Minister Netanyahu and members and of his base and supporters, many of whom have uh, supported extending Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank? There were uh, critics of the prime minister that suggested that he had missed this historic opportunity to extend sovereignty into those areas. Well, I can tell you that that historic opportunity was not there if what it means by that what people mean by that is that the United States would have supported that move. That would not have been the case had the prime minister decided to go ahead now. I mean, it's always possible to go ahead and extend sovereignty. It could have happened five years ago, uh, 10 years ago, and it can happen five, 10 years from now. But right now, what the U.S. wanted to see, and I think they were right to want to see it, and I think the prime minister understands that this is the best situation for Israel, is, as I said, to to take advantage of this historic breakthrough and then to use it really – uh, to change Israel's position in the region and, and, to exp and to advance peace both between Israel and the Arab states and also with the Palestinians. And I'll explain to you, Andrew, why I think this breakthrough uh, is so important. Because for many decades, the view has been that the road to peace with any Arab state must go through Ramallah. And I cannot tell you how many times uh, senior officials of both administrations, Republican and Democratic administrations, would say to me or would come to the prime minister's office in Jerusalem and tell him, uh, look, if you make peace with the Palestinians, you'll be able to have peace with 21 or 22 Arab states. And, of course, we would say to them, well, that's great as long as we have a Palestinian partner who wants to make peace with us. But what if the Palestinians are not prepared to cross this psychological Rubicon. They're not prepared to recognize the permanence and legitimacy of a nation state for the Jewish people in our historic homeland. What if they're not willing to do that? So are we going to give the Palestinians veto power over Israel's relations with all Arab states in the region? That makes no sense. And I think the breakthrough here, uh, the, the drama here really is that the Emirates decided to sort of break through that. Now it is true, they uh, obtain a suspension of the extension of sovereignty to those territories. But they also, I, did, I think, did something courageous. I think the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, did something uh, very courageous in saying, look, I'm not going to give the Palestinians veto power over our relations with Israel. He didn't say he didn't care about the Palestinians. He said, look, I want to support them as they move towards self-determination. I support a two-state solution. He said all of those things, and he believes them. But he wasn't willing to give the Palestinian leadership that is, as you know, quite dysfunctional. You've got half the Palestinian politics being run by Hamas, which is a terror organization committed to Israel's destruction. Uh, you have the other half that really refuses to confront the first half. And he was not going to allow this dysfunctionality to undermine the possibility of the Emirates and Israel moving into a different relationship. Because, you know, they're a, a serious country. Um, with uh, with real interests, and they thought that moving into this relationship with Israel would advance those interests. And I think the reason why this is so important, by breaking this veto, I think it will lead to other Arab states to follow suit. And ultimately, I believe, Andrew, that it will encourage forces within Palestinian society who would like to make peace with Israel. And there are those forces. I don't think they're ascendant today. I don't think they're majority today. They're certainly not the majority of the political leadership there, even of the Palestinian Authority. But I think there are those forces within Palestinian society that would like to see uh, a peace and that are prepared for historic compromise. I think the rejectionists have ruled the day for, for decades. And what they have said is we have the, all the entire, you know, the entire Arab world, with the exception of, uh, of Egypt and Jordan, the entire Arab world is behind us. 
but they're not behind them anymore. You know, the Arab cavalry is not coming because they were already moving closer to Israel. And I think the forces within Palestinian society who actually would like to reach a compromise, I think that this peace is very good for them and ultimately is very good to achieve an Israeli-Palestinian peace. Because if other Arab states will cross this Rubicon, then I think we can encourage the Palestinians ultimately to do that as well. You saw that the Saudi reaction was uh, cautiously uh, optimistic about the uh, agreement, but also noted its commitment to the Arab Peace Initiative, which says that full normalization would follow uh, recognition of the two states uh, working together. So just to be clear, do you still see that your relationship with the Arab world would be in part contingent on direct negotiations with the Palestinians? And do you see this agreement as instrumental in beginning those negotiations, even given the difficult diplomatic situation you just described with the Palestinian Authority? Yeah, I don't think it's contingent on negotiations with the Palestinians. And I think you, you, I think, described it very well, the Saudi position, with that we're sort of cautiously optimistic. You know, the Bahrainis supported what the Emirates had done. Oman had publicly supported. President Sisi had publicly supported it. And the Saudis, if you understand uh, how to read, which I'm sure you do, the, the, the tea leaves or the coffee grinds, I should say, in the Middle East, then you can understand the nuance there. I think the Saudis put out their peace initiative um, about uh, 20 years ago. Uh, which then got made into an Arab League peace initiative. And I think the positions that they put forward there are the traditional positions that they've had. At the same time, there is a uh, peace plan that is on the table, the Trump peace initiative from January. And there were three Arab ambassadors who were there when this peace plan was released. Uh, one was the Emirati ambassador. Then you had the Oman ambassador, ambassador and then uh, Bahrain. So I'm, I won't tell you that the Saudis have changed the position, their position on any of the core issues. I don't think that that is correct. But I don't think the Saudi leadership is interested in the Palestinian leadership all having a veto power over their relations with Israel or with any other country. And so I'm, I was, uh, as you say, cautiously optimistic, and I thought that the uh, statements that were made were constructive. There were very few parties who were opposed to this in the region. You had um, Iran, which doesn't surprise me, because to see two advanced societies coming together who understand Israel and the UAE, who understand the dangers of Iran, and you know where the UAE is, and li literally across the water they can see uh, Iran. So having two countries that Iran sees as enemies, two countries make this alliance, I think is very bad for the Iranian regime. I don't think it's bad for the Iranian people, but it is certainly bad for an Iranian regime, which threatens both the UAE and us, which has attacked both the UAE and us. So the fact that we're coming together, I think, is, is bad for that regime. The second um, uh, group that was opposed to this was the Palestinian leadership for the reasons that I explained, because the veto power has essentially been taken away from them. Now, I think that's bad for the current Palestinian leadership, but I don't think it's bad for the Palestinians, because as I said, I think it helps those forces within Palestinian society who want to see peace. And I think a third party that was very uh, disappointed with what happened was the Turkish president, uh, Erdogan. And uh, that's uh, bizarre, I suppose you could say, because Turkey has relations with Israel for seven decades. If memory serves, they were the first Muslim country to normalize relations with us. We have an embassy in Ankara. They have an embassy in Israel, in Tel Aviv, not in Jerusalem, but they have one in Israel. And we've had relations with them for decades. And they apparently, uh, the Turkish president threatened uh, that he would remove his ambassador from the UAE 
uh, if they move ahead with this. And so I think that goes to show you where he is in terms of the region. But mostly that this was met, I think, very well received. And look at the difference, Andrew, between how this was received and how Sadat was received. When Sadat made his historic decision, and this told, I think it really shows the huge shift that has happened over several decades in the region, and I think it's accelerated in the last decade for many factors that maybe we can speak about. But look at what happened with Sadat. When Sadat made his historic trip to Jerusalem, he basically confronted wall-to-wall rejectionism wall-to-wall rejectionism in the Arab world from the government and also, I think, from the people as well. And he, you know, he came to Israel. He did get a concession, a pretty big one from Israel, which was uh, the Sinai, which is about three times the size of the state of Israel. But in doing this and making this decision to break with the wall-to-wall rejectionism of the Arab world against Israel, uh, it was it was an act of courage that I, I think has to be seen as a kind of once in a century type moment, and he ultimately paid uh, with his life for that act of courage. Now, when the crown prince of of the Emirates, Sheikh Mohammed, made his decision, he's not facing. I, I think it is a courageous decision. There's no doubt about it because it breaks through this de facto opposition. Um, and essentially it breaks the veto, as I said, of the Palestinians, but it was not met with wall-to-wall opposition, neither by Arab governments nor from uh, the public. And if you saw the response within the Emirates to this decision, it was sort of overwhelmingly positive. And I think they're very excited about the prospects of peace. And I think the way that you saw the response in the region, I think it is very different than it, than it would have been even 10 years ago because our relations have really been improving between Israel and the Arab states who recognize for different reasons. It's the rise of Iran. It's the rise of some Sunni radical forces like al-Qaeda and ISIS. It's a perception that the U.S. is withdrawing from the region. It's also the understanding that Israel's a kind of global technological power in many areas. There are many, uh, many in the Arab world who understand that Israel is not an enemy, but a potential ally in confronting common dangers and also seizing common opportunities. And I think you see the best evidence of that in the way this was received in the Arab world vis-a-vis the way Sadat's move was, uh, was, uh, was perceived about you know, four decades ago. The agreement has unleashed a new diplomatic dynamic in the region. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was in Jerusalem, is also visiting Sudan and Bahrain on this trip, two of the three Arab countries along with Oman where discussions are reported to be already underway uh, for a possible follow-up agreement along the lines of uh, the United Arab Emirates. There are also reports of the possibility of a regional peace conference, including possible talks with the Palestinians. How do you see the process evolving in the wake of the agreement with the UAE, the Trump peace plan, and what are the prospects for a two-state solution? Well, first of all, the Trump peace plan uh, is a peace plan that calls for a two-state solution. That's clear. And they also outlined uh, the map. Uh, when, he, when he announced at the end of January the peace plan, it came with this conceptual map. And one of the things we were working with the administration on was as we were preparing to extend sovereignty over territories, that the Trump plan designates as being part of Israel in the future, according to his vision, as we were working through, we were trying to turn that conceptual map into an actual map. So the Trump plan does call for a two-state solution. And in my view, 
it is a realistic two-state solution. And I think what a lot of people have been dealing with in the Middle East for two decades has frankly been a two-state illusion. And by that, I mean the idea that Israel would return basically back to the 1967 lines, which were indefensible, or the idea that Israel will remove 50,000 or 100,000 people uh, from their homes, All, or the idea, uh, probably most importantly, that Israel will accept international uh, forces to protect its security uh, in the heartland uh, of Judea, Samaria, or the, what the world calls the West Bank. Uh, those are policies that are not going to be accepted by any Israeli government. You know, we're in a different place than we were 20 years ago. We, uh, after Camp David with Barak and Arafat, we saw a wave of terrorism against Israel. Over a thousand Israelis were killed. After the disengagement, where Israel withdrew completely from Gaza and basically did the template of the international community, go back to the 67 lines, uproot all the settlements. There was a hope that maybe this would trigger something positive on the Palestinian side, lead to a greater prosperity for peace and reconciliation, and instead we got a terror base on our southern border where thousands and thousands of rockets have been fired at Israel, and we have an ongoing uh, concern about that even now, even as we're speaking, and it flares up from time to time, and we've had three major uh, conflicts with Gaza since then. And when Israel left uh, uh, territory in southern Lebanon in 2000, there was also hope that that could maybe trigger some sort of peace between Israel and Lebanon or improve the prospects for peace in the region. And instead, we got an Iranian-backed terror base in southern Lebanon, and thousands of rockets have been fired on us from there. And today, Lebanon represents, and Hezbollah is essentially taking control of that country, they represent a huge threat to Israel with well over 100,000 rockets pointed at us and a great danger that could that could flare up uh, any time. And so Israel is not going to go back and, and simply embrace what has become the boilerplate for many people in the international community. And what was so important about what the Trump plan did is it put forward a plan that Israel could accept, even though it does call for territorial compromises, even though it does call for a two-state solution, it requires Israel to make compromises. But it, it presents a realistic path forward, and we would love the Palestinians to come to the table and to negotiate based on that framework. And I think what the Trump administration achieved with putting out that plan is they were the first time that the Trump administration has put forward a plan that Israel, uh, with all its concerns, could accept. And the prime minister and also then um, uh, Benny Gantz, who is today the defense minister and alternate prime minister, both of them accepted and said this was very important and we should negotiate on the basis of this plan so that Israel could accept uh, and the Arab states would not reject. And I think they were able to do that. And so we're encouraged by the fact that the Emirates and others, we hope, will come and call on the Palestinians to get into negotiations. Now, the Palestinians may have different positions, but they should deal with those positions in the negotiations. So there's no question that Israel remains committed uh, to negotiating. And what will happen now, I cannot tell you. There are different possibilities. I think the most important thing right now is to see if we can have other breakthroughs with other Arab states that could then back, I think, a larger process with the Palestinians. And which state will be the, the next one to go, I can't tell you. But one of the reasons why we were successful now is because I think the, the talks were, were very discreet. And I can tell you that there are talks happening with several states. Many of those states want things from Israel, but also those states want things from the United States that have nothing to do with Israel. And having the U.S. as a facilitator in this process is very, very important. Having a U.S. administration engaged in it really uh, with the UAE enabled us to succeed. 
and uh, Jared Kushner was engaged in it, and Avi Berkowitz, and of course, President Trump was updated. And I think they're very, and Secretary of State Pompeo, and they're very excited to take advantage of this uh, window of opportunity and to encourage other states to come on board as well. And I think that uh, the Secretary Pompeo's uh, trip to the region was a reflection of that. And I think you're going to see other visits in the region very soon that will also be a reflection of that. Let me ask you one more question on uh, the UAE, a related question on the UAE agreement, and then I want to get, get your thoughts a little more on Iran, which we've already talked about a bit. According uh, to several publications, the UAE canceled a trilateral meeting that was supposed to take place at the US, uh, at the UN, sorry, last week. Because of Prime Minister Netanyahu's opposition to the US sale of uh, the F-35 fighter aircraft, has this complicated uh, your negotiations with the UAE and will Israel lobby against the sale or let it pass as a purely U.S. UAE matter? Well, I, I saw that report as well. I don't know if it's 100 percent accurate. What I can tell you is that, that Israel's policies regarding arms sales to the region, that, those policies have not changed. And I think a lot of people don't understand what the QME, the maintaining Israel's qualitative military edge, what it means and, and how it's enforced. I and mean, that's been policy for several decades of U.S. administrations. There's also a legal commitment. I think it was enshrined in law for the first time in 2008. And we have been blessed with a peace agreement um, that has endured for 40 years with Egypt and for 25 years with Jordan. That has not diminished in any way the U.S. commitment to maintaining Israel's qualitative military uh, edge. And, and one of the reasons why that's important is nobody knows what's going to happen uh, in the future. You know, Israel was doing joint military exercises with Turkey 15 years ago. Today, we're in a very different relationship with Turkey. Um, we have relations with them, which is a good thing, but we're not in the relationship that we were in with them before. In the case of Egypt, we have a very good relationship with, uh, with President Sisi, and we work together to deal with many, many challenges in the region. And that peace between Israel and Egypt has been a bulwark of stability in a very, very unstable region. But as you will recall, a few years ago, uh, Morsi was the president of Egypt, and he had a very different view of relations uh, with Israel. So I think it's important that the United States maintain the commitment to uh, keep Israel's qualitative military edge. They have stressed to us that they intend to keep that commitment. They have reassured us, even yesterday, the Secretary of State said it to the Prime Minister, that they will maintain uh, Israel's qualitative military edge. And the way this process works is that our security officials sit down with U.S. security officials. They, they consult uh, with us. They try to understand all concerns, and they work to address those concerns. And I, I'm confident that as this thing plays out, that Israel's concerns will be addressed and that Israel's qualitative military edge will be maintained. Would Israel then oppose the uh, fighter aircraft sale, or is that something you believe can be worked out in those negotiations? This is something that an Israeli government has to, first of all, have their own internal discussions about. Then we sit down with the U.S. administration, and if there is an arms sale that's on the table, 
any arms sale that's brought to our attention, we will convey our concerns to the United States, and the United States has a legal obligation to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge, and we have to work through those issues at the time. I can't speculate about what's going to happen uh, in the future, but I, as ambassador sitting in Washington, after there's a discussion in Israel's government, after there's the conversations between U.S. security officials and Israeli security officials, then those decisions are made. And I'm confident that there will be a way um, for these things to be worked out so that Israel's qualitative military edge will be maintained. But Israel's policy towards arms sales in the region, that has not changed. And that was not part in any way of this agreement. Let me turn to Iran. You mentioned uh, some of the concerns that Israel has at this point with regard to Hezbollah, uh, with regard to Iranian relationship with Hamas. The U.S. proposed last week to uh, implement snapback sanctions on Iran to prevent uh, the U.N. Security Council arms embargo from being lifted, as was part of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but this was uh, resisted and opposed by other members of the Security Council. Um, how concerned are you now that Iran may soon be able to buy weapons? Well, I'm just as concerned I was, as I was five years ago, because you rightly said that this was part of the deal that was made five years ago. And as you recall, Israel opposed uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. In fact, the Prime Minister Netanyahu was the only leader who publicly opposed it. Uh, the Arab states in the region privately opposed it, but publicly, I, mean, I think, took a different position for uh, different reasons. But, the, but Israel opposed it. Now, why did we oppose this deal? We opposed the deal primarily because it did not block Iran's path to the bomb. Even though many people who were selling us this deal at the time said it, it blocks Iran's path to the bomb. That's not true. It actually pays it. What it does is it puts restrictions on Iran's nuclear program uh, over a number of years, uh, for a number of years, I should say. And those restrictions are automatically remo removed in a few years. Not if Iran changes its behavior, but just if the clock keeps going around. Uh, after eight years, a number of restrictions on the nuclear program are removed. At 10 years, others, 15 years, other restrictions are removed. And a decade may seem like a long time in the life of politics, but it's a blink of an eye in the life of a country. And what was said at the time, that the nuclear deal basically had closed the nuclear file with Iran or ended Iran, Iranian nuclear ambitions for nuclear weapons, that was simply not true. And I, I think it's, it's, it's shocking that people think that Israel would not support a deal that would actually block Iran's path to nuclear weapons because we are a country that is threatened with annihilation by this regime. They tweet, tweet about it. They say that they're going to destroy Israel or that Israel will be destroyed in you know, 25 years. While they were making this nuclear deal, they were still vowing to destroy Israel, and they work to destroy Israel. They do it through Syria. They do it through Lebanon. They do it through their proxies among the Palestinians. So we were opposed to this deal because it didn't solve the one problem it was supposed to solve, which was the nuclear uh, problem. And our opposition was not that Iran primarily was not that Iran was going to violate the agreement. If you go back and you look at what the prime minister said in 2015 in that speech to Congress is that Iran could get to a nuclear arsenal by keeping the agreement because these sunset clauses will all will essentially all hit in several years. 
and all of these nuclear restrictions would be removed. That's what made this deal a terrible and outrageous deal because at the price of perhaps delaying Iran from breaking out to one bomb in the next several years, it made virtually guaranteed that Iran would break out to a nuclear arsenal in 10 or 15 years. And that's not a trade-off that Israel was prepared uh, to make. At the same time, Andrew, this deal also removed the sanctions. So not only did it not close the nuclear file, it opened up another big problem. Iran was an aggressor before this deal was made, and people who were selling the deal said, you know, if we bring Iran into the community of nations, they're going to act differently. This will moderate them. And instead, what it did is Iran that got all the cash from the removal of sanctions, huge money, billions, tens of billions, actually over the course of 10 or 15 years, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. As money is pouring into Iran's coffers, they weren't using it to build schools or build infrastructure for the people of, uh, of Iran. They were using it to fuel their war machine in the region. And you see that in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and Gaza and elsewhere. And I would love to believe that all that money that was coming in was uh, going to be used to uh, establish a GI Bill for returning members of the Revolutionary Guard. But it, all it did is fuel Iran's war machine in the region, and it made – a country that was aggressive before, it made it even wealthier and more aggressive. And we saw the impact of this right after the deal was made in 2015. In the next couple of years, even before the Trump administration um, uh, pulled out of the deal, you saw Iran's escalating aggression uh, in the region. So this was a deal that was so bad on so many different levels. And we were very grateful that President Trump in 2017 refused to recertify the deal. In 2018, he withdrew from the deal. In 2019, they actually ended all waivers on uh, sanctions on Iran's um, uh, the waivers to allow them that enabled them to sell oil on the international markets because that was the big money of the deal. If you go back to the debate that happened five years ago, a lot of people said, and they were telling me in 2017 and 2018 when there was a discussion over whether or not uh, the Trump administration should pull out, they said, well, we gave them all the money up front. So why should we pull out of the deal? I said, no, you didn't give them much money up front. The 50 billion or 100 billion or 150 billion, depending on how you do the calculation, you remember that number being floated in 2015, that was the signing bonus of the deal. The big money of the deal was the ability of Iran to sell oil on uh, the markets. To, and when the deal in 2018, before Trump pulled out of the deal, or right at the time that he pulled out of the deal, I think it was May or June 2018, the numbers were that Iran was selling 2.8 million barrels a day of oil. And a few months ago, even before uh, COVID, Iran was selling about 300,000 barrels a day. That's a two and a half million barrel a day difference. And the price of oil for most of that period was around 60 bucks a barrel. So that is, do the math, 60 bucks, two and a half million barrels a day. That's $150 million a day that would have gone to Iran had they maintained the same deal that they were in, had the, had the United States not withdrawn from the deal and not restored sanction. $150 million a day, that's $4.5 billion a month. That's over $50 billion a year. In 10 or 15 years, do the math, and you're talking about huge money that is going into Iran that helps fuel their aggression in the whole region. So when Trump decided to end those waivers uh, on the ability of countries to buy oil from Iran, it was a huge blow to the Iranian economy. And a few months after that, um, the U.S., in a very bold decision, decided to take out Qasem Soleimani, who was uh, the one who was driving this war machine in the region. 
And that's why Israel is grateful for all of these steps that happen because it helps curb uh, Iran's aggression in the region. It doesn't mean they've given up their goals, but it means that somebody is actually fighting back. Now, what happened last week? That's the context to understand last week. The first sunset clause was about to come up in October. And the decision to, uh, or, or the enabling of Iran to buy and sell uh, weapons on the international markets, that decision was made in 2015 as part of the nuclear deal. And there was a big mistake that was made at the negotiators for the negotiators at the time to allow Iran in five years to be able to buy and sell weapons. And that could be planes and it could be submarines and it could be ships from countries like China and Russia. So the arms embargo was going to be removed. The United States tried to head that off at the pass, and they said to uh, European countries and to other members of the Security Council that either you extend the arms embargo or we're going to snap back sanctions on everything, which would include the arms embargo as well. And the United States, uh, about 10 days ago, um, tried to get that passed. The European countries refused to do it, and I don't think they refused to do it because they don't care about uh, Iran buying and selling arms. I just think that they're still wedded to this nuclear deal unfortunately, and they weren't willing to blow up the nuclear deal. But the United States said, look, I'm not going to allow the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world to be able to buy and sell weapons. And uh, the Trump administration did the right thing. And and last week, uh, they started this process of uh, of putting snapback sanctions on Iran. And within 30 days from now, those sanctions will will come into force. And therefore, the it's essentially pulling the plug on the nuclear deal that was signed 15 years ago, uh, five years ago. Ambassador, would, President Trump has said that uh, he would like to negotiate a new nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, would you support a, a Trump administration undertaking that type of negotiation? Look, the prime minister made clear 15 years ago that he would, that Israel would live with a deal that would dismantle Iran's military nuclear capability. That was the problem. Let's say we would have actually closed the nuclear file with Iran. Let's say uh, all the centrifuges would be removed. All the enriched uranium would be removed. The entire infrastructure of Iran's nuclear weapons uh, program would be removed. They do not need that infrastructure in order to have peaceful nuclear energy. There's a dozen or two dozen countries around the world that have nuclear energy in their countries, and they do not domestically enrich uranium. So if you get rid of all of that infrastructure from the centrifuges to the enriched uranium to the heavy water facilities to everything, you remove that from Iran and you make a deal with them. Yes, Israel would support something that actually dismantled Iran's military nuclear capability, even though the price of doing that may be the removal of sanctions. And then we're going to have to deal with Iran's aggression. The problem of the deal that was signed is it didn't solve the one problem it was supposed to solve, which was the nuclear problem, and it made the other problem of Iran's aggression and missiles and everything else worse. So Israel would welcome a deal that would dismantle Iran's military nuclear capability. And, and the prime minister has been saying for years, for 20 years, that the only way to achieve such an outcome is to combine crippling sanctions with a credible military threat to make sure that Iran doesn't break out to the bomb. If you have those two things, then ultimately you can get Iran to understand that they're going to have to give up their nuclear program to get out of that advice. That did not happen a few years ago. If the Trump administration continues its policy of maximum pressure that tells the Iranian regime, we are willing to do a deal, but you're going to have to actually dismantle your military nuclear capability, then Israel would support that. 
And uh, it wasn't reassuring to you uh, when the U.S. was in the deal that the breakout time for an Iranian nuclear weapon development had been extended as a result of the conditions in the JCPOA? Not at all, because it was, uh, it was a false sense of comfort, because it did not it, – all it does, again, it, all it did was ensure that Iran in a few years would have no restrictions on the program whatsoever. And again, it, uh, a, a decade may seem like a long time in the life of politics, but it's a blink of an eye in the life of a nation. We're already five years on. Now, a lot of people were upset that Iran has violated the agreements because they've, uh, they've used centrifuges uh, that they shouldn't be using. They've enriched uranium in the Fordow facility, which they should not do. Their stockpiles are up. They're violating this deal. But I would tell those people, why are you so upset about this? Because you enabled them to do that if they would have just waited a few more years. All of Iran's violations today – are, would not be violations in a few years according to the nuclear agreement because the sunset clauses would have already all uh, taken effect and Iran would have no restrictions on its program. So it didn't give me comfort to know that they, uh, they moved from uh, three months of a, of a breakout time to a year of a breakout time and the fissile material necessary uh, for a weapon if you know that in a few years the breakout time will be zero. According to this agreement, the breakout time would have been zero, I think, in year 12. That's seven years from now. What kind of nuclear deal is that? And that's what they were selling at the time. You know, I said what, what, it would have been truthful for people to have sold the nuclear deal at the time five years ago by saying this statement, which was never said. What was said at the time was it blocked Iran's path to the bomb, which it didn't. Had they said, we have a high degree of confidence that because of the deal we've made, that Iran will not break out to a bomb in the next several years. But the flip side of that is it virtually guarantees that Iran is going to be able to break out to the bomb in, in 10 to 15 years. And they won't at that point need to sneak in or break into the bomb. They actually can just walk in because there will be no restrictions on their nuclear program. And they can have an industrial size enrichment capability that they do not need. And it basically opens this path. And that's what the prime minister meant when he said it paves their path to a bomb. And it says all you need to do is wait. Wait 10 or 15 years, and you'll just walk into the nuclear weapons club. And that's very, very dangerous. And this deal, contrary to what has said and was said at the time, did not freeze Iran's nuclear program. Under this deal, Iran is allowed to do uh, advanced uh, – to do research and development on advanced centrifuges on the IR2, 4, 6, and 8. So second, 4, 6, 8th generation centrifuges. Iran can do research according to this deal. And out of these hundred and something page document that I read every word of a few years ago, I think the most obscene line in this whole thing was that Iran could only do research and development on the IR 2, 4, 6, and 8 over the next decade. That's like saying that Apple can only do research and development on the iPhone 13, 14, 15, and 16 over the next decade. And we're supposed to be pleased with this? What this deal did, Andrew, is that it told Iran mothball old technology – Work quietly on new technology. Continue to develop your ballistic missile capability, your intercontinental ballistic missile capability, and then you'll have all the elements in, pace, in place when those sunset clauses hit in 10 or 15 years from now where you'll have the missiles, you'll have the enrichment material, and you'll also at that point have the ability to weaponize. Now, it does, the deal didn't enable them to weaponize, but we know that Iran was lying. They were relying about their uh, nuclear weapons program. You saw that archive that Israel was able to obtain 
that we exposed to the world a couple of years ago, which shows that Iran's weaponization program was much more advanced than people think. And Iran is a country that, I don't know, is a third the size of Europe. And you can try to work on weaponization in a room that's probably the size of your office. So to assume that uh, inspectors are going to be able to prevent this from happening is ridiculous. The archive was not found by inspectors. The archive was found by Israeli intelligence, not by inspectors. Inspectors are just looking at the proverbial you know, keys under the light of the lampposts. So this deal was bad from top to, from top to bottom, and it, the, the plug should be pulled on it. And I hope that a new administration, whatever happens here in the United States in November, will not go back to the same bad deal that was signed and will work to create an agreement where they would actually dismantle Iran's military nuclear capability. That's an agreement that Israel could support. My last question, Ambassador, is regarding uh, the upcoming U.S. presidential election and U.S.-Israel relations. President Trump is proud of his record of support for Israel and his friendship with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Former Vice President and Democratic candidate for President Joe Biden also has a stellar record of support for Israel and a longtime friendship with the Prime Minister as well. How does Israel view the upcoming election? Look, that's a, that's a decision for the American people to make in November and whoever they elect that Israel will uh, will work with them in order to do whatever we can to strengthen peace and security in our region. And we would hope that who is ever elected will look at the reality of the region, um, look at the region the way it is, not necessarily how they hope it will be, but look at the uh, at the reality in the region. And I think that was something that was missing five years ago because both Israel and the Arab states were opposed to that deal. And both Israel and the Arab states you know, uh, supported extending the arms embargo and supports the U.S. as they're doing this effort to snap back sanctions. That's got to tell you something. That's got to be morally worth something that your partners in the region are telling you that the deal was a bad deal and that are thankful and grateful that the Trump administration had made this shift. And I, I think, look, that's very different. You remember there was the six-party talks uh, with Korea uh, two decades ago and even further with the Clinton administration and also in the Bush administration. And I know that's something that the Trump administration has also tried to, to work on with, uh, with Korea. But when those six-party talks were happening, two of the parties who were at the table were Japan and the South Koreans. They were there at the negotiating table and they were telling both the Clinton administration and the Bush administration to do those deals. And that has to count for something, that the countries who are your allies in the region who have the most skin in the game and the most to lose are telling you, you know, make this agreement. In the case of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, your allies in the region were saying not to make that agreement. We're there. You know, we have been the guinea pigs in this failed experiment, and we are telling you that this is a big mistake. Now, European leaders, I mean, we'd have this situation where the European, the former, you know, head of foreign policy for Europe, Mogherini, would would run around and say, yeah, this deal has made the Middle East safer. But the people who were the guinea pigs, the actual Israelis and Arabs, we would say it doesn't make us safer. It actually makes much more dangerous. So it's very nice that people in Europe think that the Middle East is safer with the nuclear deal, but it's not. And we live there. And I hope that any administration, when that person gets you know, sworn in on January 20th, will reach out to their allies in the region. 
Israel, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, other countries in the region will talk to us about you know, what is possible, what can be achieved, what our concerns were, and we take all of that into consideration. And whatever is said in the course of campaigns, people will say, here's our responsibility to bring peace and security in the Middle East, and hopefully we will be able to find that common ground and work together to achieve it. Uh, and and we'll make our we'll do our best to make our case. I think actually having this um, alliance between Israel and the UAE will bring a more powerful united voice also to those discussions. Because when Israel and the Arab states are on the same page, it's good to pay attention. That doesn't happen all the time. And I think on this issue and on other issues, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity with whoever is elected in November to sort of make that case. And hopefully we will find that common ground to continue to advance peace and security uh, in the region. And we're, uh, we're confident that we will be able to achieve that. Ambassador Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the United States. Thank you. You've been very generous with your time today. It's a fantastic conversation and we enjoyed having you with us. Thank you, Andrew. Good to be with you. And let, let's hope for more good news from the Middle East. It happens once every quarter of a century. So let's see if we can make it happen much more frequently. Indeed. Good news is always welcome. Thanks again. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel, Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. I'd like to draw your attention to three of the many takeaways from our conversation just now with Ambassador Ron Dermer. First, with regard to the UAE deal, Ambassador Dermer said, the sky's the limit. Israel considers this agreement as a sea change, opening the door to normalization with other Arab states and ranking among Israel's greatest diplomatic achievements, including making peace with Egypt and Jordan. There is a flurry of diplomacy in the region, including the travels this week by Secretary Pompeo that tried to close at least one more normalization deal. Second, Ambassador Dermer hinted that the question of U.S. sales of F-35 fighter aircraft to the UAE could be worked out in a manner that will not jeopardize the U.S. commitment to maintaining Israel's qualitative military edge in the region. The ambassador made clear that the F-35s had nothing to do with the UAE-Israel agreement. Third, that the primary concern for the Israeli government in the U.S. elections is to avoid a return to the assumptions that led to the Iran nuclear deal under the Obama administration. A new nuclear deal, if there is to be one, in Ambassador Dermer's score, 
would reflect the concerns of Israel and other U.S. allies in the region and should include a complete dismantling of Iran's possible nuclear weaponization capability, including no centrifuges and no enrichment. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.